Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On this podcast, I often say that we're on the front lines of military history, and today I can prove it. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and we have an exclusive history-defining special here on Wednesday. I've just spent the last few days on what were the literal front lines of the Battle of Waterloo. Over 200 years ago, Napoleon faced off against Wellington and the Alliance in what would be an era-defining, era-ending battle. So ferocious was Waterloo that the combined number of men killed or wounded reached nearly 50,000. Reports surface of men and horses dying slowly on the battlefield for days after the fight, with nowhere near enough locals or doctors to help them. And instead of the war graves we see today, well, the end result was mass graves and ceremoniously filled with soldiers' bodies. Yet one mystery has plagued the Battle of Waterloo and stumped historians. Despite the large amounts of casualties and mass graves that were reported, only one skeleton, one body, has been found from that battle. Some theories about the bodies were that they were exhumed 20 to 30 years after the battle, ground up and used as fertiliser. But this history is being completely rewritten by what was found at Waterloo this week. I'm not going to give it away, but this is a truly exciting special, a cutting-edge new military history that I know you're going to truly find fascinating. Enjoy. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It's a pleasure. Now, give us a little indication of what your role is with Waterloo Uncovered. Well, I am one of, I think there are four of us now, field directors And so we have oversight of what's happening on the site in any given year. But I'm also the academic lead. I'm Professor of Conflict Archaeology and History at the University of Glasgow. So when it comes to the kind of academic outputs and academic arc of our adventure here, I have a lot of input on that. So how long have you been involved in the project? Right from the start. I was the third person in. Charlie and Mark, who founded it. Yep and everybody knows that story now, I guess. But they invited me down to London for a meeting. It would be autumn of 2014. And they said, how do you fancy leading up a project doing the archaeology of the Battle of Waterloo? Now, you might think Pollard's going to jump at that 
but I was very busy. I had other interests. And to be frank, Waterloo hadn't really been on my radar. You know, okay. It wasn't on my bucket list. Yeah. But then they said, we'll be working with veterans. And that was it. That was the clincher because I already had this idea of working with veterans on a, an archaeological project in the Falkland Islands looking at the 1982 war, which has actually just had its first season. That finally came together. So this had things in common with that. And when I say I wasn't a buff about Waterloo, I am now. Yeah. I am an obsessive now. So, you know, like every other buff, I have a study full of books on Waterloo. But what we do here is very different from the books. Well, I've been here for a few days now, and I, I am now, I've, I've got the bug. I'm obsessed with Waterloo. And one of the reasons is because of what you've been able to find here over the last few days. So give us a bit of context to where we're standing right now. Well, we are outside of, we're on the eastern side of the farm of Mont Saint-Jean. And as you can see, it's still a very active place. There's actually a brewery here, but on the day of the battle, on the 18th of June, 1815, it was a very different place. We are behind Wellington's line, and if it wasn't for the apple trees, you'd be able to see the ridge on which most of Wellington's army was placed and beyond it towards us. And so this is behind the lines, and it was used as the main field hospital for right. Wellington's British and Allied army. And casualties would be brought here for immediate treatment and Mick Crumplin, who's an expert in the surgery of the time, he reckons that upwards of 500 limbs were probably amputated here, arms and legs, because there is very little option. If you're hit by one of these soft lead musket balls, there's very little option at the time other than to take it off. Because you've got to stop that bleeding somehow, Ex and you can't exactly. treat the wound, you can't get to the artery, so you've got to get that clean wound. Exactly, and it, I suspect it's probably in the lap of the gods as to whether you survived or not, the shock, because there's no anaesthetics, no antibiotics. So uh, a really basic but essential form of surgery. And we've seen the evidence for it here in the most visceral and unique way, really. Well, take us into a bit of detail about that because this place must have been living hell when the battle was taking place. It is raging over there. You can hear yeah. it, you can see it, you can smell it. But the actual real world human impact of the war is seen within these trenches. Very much so, and I think one of the things about Waterloo is that, and we were talking about being a buff, is that there is a lot of romance about Waterloo. It's, you know, the fancy uniforms, the colour, the chivalry, the cavalry, Napoleon and Wellington. But what we have seen here is the harsh reality of the Battle of Waterloo. It's the closest we'll get to a time machine. And I actually find this trench quite disturbing. I'm glad that I'm not walking you around it and, yeah. and taking the close-up look. We're, we're stood at the side of it. And one of the reasons is that I find the contents quite disturbing. My name's Sam Wilson, and I'm one of the team supervisors for Waterloo Uncovered. The ground that we're standing on was, at the start of the battle, occupied by the Union Brigade, the cavalry, and including the famous Scots Greys that have this big charge during the battle. Ahead of us, we can see the reverse slope that Wellington used so well as a defensive position, and that would have been occupied by Picton's division okay. uh, immediately in front of us. So Wellington was a defensive master, we know that. Is this the place where he would have got his troops to get low, to fool Napoleon and his generals about just how many troops there were? Absolutely. So you can see how the ground dips away in front of us here. This is where all the infantry would have been laying down. And also, we can only just about see the ridgeline from here. So you can appreciate that all of these troops would be completely hidden. Even the cavalry standing here would have dismounted, been standing with their horses, 
no one can see that they're here until they reach the top of that ridgeline. And once they reach the top of that ridgeline, is it then too late? Do we have any artillery behind us that can start taking fire? We do have some artillery up here. Um, it's mostly infantry, actually. So there's a heavy firefight. When Delon's corps comes across uh, right. the battlefields in the early afternoon, we have uh, Picton's troops really taking the brunt of that well, assault. How close are they when Napoleon's troops get to the top of that ridge? We could see them from here. You know, they are literally on that ridgeline. And it is one of the early crisis points of the battle where the infantry are engaged heavily in this firefight but they are you know they're starting to take a few steps back back the inexorability of the french columns smashing up to the ridge line Um, and it's at that point that the cavalry get sent in and they tip the balance in the allies favor you can almost imagine that sight the silhouettes emerging on the top of that hill and then it's the cavalry that are sent in to charge them down absolutely yeah and that's when the columns get broken up and, and we get that famous we have the famous painting of scotland forever yes. the scots greys charging it's that moment of the battle um, what we do know from the archaeological work so far is that where the french are up on that ridge line some of their musket balls are actually falling into the fields where we currently stood and that's all overshot basically from that firefight so the musket balls are very much at the extreme end of their range but they're dropping into this field you can imagine them like hailstones or something falling amongst the cavalry as they waited for that order to go terrifying terrifying so that's what we're going to look for now that's it the more the merrier i think all right sam let's get on with it let's do it what happened here during the day was the saving of lives the losing of lives And we have, to give you a flavour, there is an amazing account by a British soldier the day after the battle who visits the farm and writes about it. And he describes in the middle of the courtyard, which, you know, you can walk into now. It's still there, yep. It's still there, was a mound of severed limbs, arms and legs, just in a huge heap in the middle. And obviously after the battle, it has to be cleared up. So the battle's fought on a Sunday, There are still wounded on the battlefield, believe it or not, by the Wednesday and Thursday. The dead take at least 10 days, or at least most of the dead, and they bring in local people to dispose of the dead. And you might think, well, yes, they buried them. Well, they did bury them. They put people in pits in great numbers, but also in twos and threes. And a couple of visitors described that the fields and hills and the, the rolling landscape as though it's covered in molehills. These are all the graves of the dead. Right. Some of them are big pits. But that process takes about 10 days. But it's not just the pits. They're actually burning the dead as well. There are so many, maybe fifteen to 20,000 dead. It's difficult to put your finger on it. There's actually a new paper about to come out on the number of dead. But I'd, let's use that, you know, 15,000 as, yeah. as a working figure for not the wounded as well, just the dead. So they have to be disposed of. And we've done a lot of work in various locations now on the battlefield. And we're actually carrying out, I think, the most intensive geophysics project survey of a historic battlefield ever undertaken, certainly from the 19th century. And so what we've started to do in 2022 is to test the anomalies that are coming up from that to see whether they are related to the battle. Could they be burial pits? It's early days on that yet. But when we were last here, so we started the project in 2015. We came back every year thereafter, up until 2019. What happened in 2019 was we were doing a metal detector survey of the orchard we're in at the back of Mont Saint-Jean, and we found musket balls. And we were quite shocked to see how close the battle got to the farm. I mean, there was fighting around here. And then one of the detectorists over towards this road was stood by, hit a signal and started to dig, just thinking it was another metal object, and encountered 
in his little excavation trench a bone. And um, we further investigated it, and it turned out very quickly to be a human bone. So we put in a proper excavation trench, took a lot of care over it, and what we uncovered were three amputated legs. So, Hans, tell me, what have you found on the battlefield? Today it has been a part of a horseshoe, and I found a little pistol ball. Oh, why would there be a pistol ball here? Is this the last shots of an officer? <sighs> this is the question I have to leave to Tony Pollard. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> because it's quite strange because we found pistol balls more south to Mont Saint Jean, and now we are up here on the, the high part of the field. And it's a great find to find a pistol ball up here. Of course, also a musket ball, but it seems that if we go further down to the slope, from where we are standing now, we have a huge concentration of musket balls. And also yesterday I found a pistol ball in the very same uh, lane I'm sweeping now with the, or scan with my detector. So we are in the line of fire. Yeah, I must say that. It really does add that extra three-dimensional layer to understanding the history. When you're standing here and you know where those musket balls were coming in, you know where an officer might well have been firing their last shot, and then you look down that hill there and you can see where cannonballs have been found and where the French would have been standing, you start to place yourself in that moment in history. Yeah. The three amputated legs were lying on top a dump of ammunition boxes, of tin boxes, which is what gave the metal detector signal. So, you know, we're not looking at metal detectors that detect bone. It was the metal underneath that gave the bone away. And that was phenomenal. So we spent most of 2019, the two weeks we were here, excavating that deposit. So that was the clue right here to start with. And this road that's beside us, that was here during the battle there as was well. A, yeah, we went back and looked at the mapping. There's a map from the 1770s, 1780s, which shows the farm in good detail. And there is a road here. And the, the idea that, well, we found the human bones, but further along, on pretty much the same line, we found animal teeth right. protruding from the side of the trench. And we thought, right, that's either a horse or a cow. But the problem was we were running out of time. So we, we had specialists in, so the bones were lifted and taken to the lab in Brussels, and they underwent analysis, and we covered the rest of the trench over. And we thought, right, we'll come back in 2020. Little did we know that it would be hit by the pandemic, and so 2020 passes, 2021, and we're now 2022, so this is the first time we've been back since then. So you've been waiting for three years to find out what yeah, is really here. Yeah, so we've done a lot of thinking, obviously. And the theory I came up with was that through that mapping evidence, through the location on the edge of the orchard next to the road, what we were looking at was debris from the hospital mm -hmm. had literally being dumped in the ditch which would have run alongside this road. So it's just being used as a rubbish pit. And these human remains were treated as rubbish. And that was the working theory. So I, when I put together the project design for this season, I put this, you know, one of our research questions will be, are the amputated legs that we found in a ditch? Because the animal bones were on the same line. So clearly this was a key target when we came back. And we've only been here, it's now Friday. We only started work here on Monday. And but, but so much progress has been made then. Do you think you can clearly say that your theory is playing out? We're still debating that. There are other questions now because... There's always more questions. And that's why we're here. That's yep. why we keep coming back. And the point is that it was a horse. So right. we've excavated what looks like an intact horse. From the battle. 
from the battle and it's not just one horse there are three horses in there nose to tail I just told the team in the wrap-up talk here that I've been doing uh, conflict battlefield archaeology for nigh on 25 years, says the old man, <laughs> and I have never seen anything like this. You know, I've excavated mass graves on the Western Front from the First World War. I've never seen anything like this. These four horses sat nose to tail in this depression in the ground. Now, it's not just the horses. As I said, we had the amputated legs yes. at the end of that line of horses, yep. and we found a human skeleton. So, as you can hear, our director, Mark, is working really hard at his job by um, getting hooked into metal detecting. Mark, what have you found? Uh, so far, uh, we've found a piece of non-ferrous wire, uh, oh, which was wow, extremely pro, exciting. And now we are investigating what is probably going to be some kind of iron-rich metal. So you're finding, you think this is going to be Napoleon's badge cap? Uh, we're not entirely sure yet. We believe the piece of wire was probably from a, a, maybe a stirrup, some kind of horse fitting um, for the Scots Greys uh, as they mustered here before their charge against the French. And in this hole, I, I'm imagining maybe an Iron Age pickaxe, something like that. So not, nothing, nothing sort of too, too spectacular, really. Mark, you found nothing? No, it just means it's deeper, which means it's older. And ah, if this is an Iron Age pickaxe, I'm done. <laughs> Tony, what is the significance of finding that skeleton? Well, the human skeleton is an incredibly rare find because there's only one other on the entire battlefield that it's been excavated archaeologically. So it has the potential, uh, it's dreadful to say it, but those human remains have the potential to give us insight into at least one individual. And it already looks, it's not fully exposed, but it looks as though that person was quite small in stature, which is not hugely unusual, but it's interesting to see that that's one of the features leaping out at us and those remains will be taken away and analyzed and i would hope i mean i led the team that found the biggest mass grave from the first world war encountered since the 1920s so i am not unused to dealing with this sort of site everyone is unique as this clearly is but i would hope that once that analysis has taken place that that individual will be given a you know i'm already in my head seeing a funeral with full military honors and that's just me yeah the idea that this is some sort of dump, it's a place that when everything is going on, the turmoil of conflict, that anything that is not useful, you know, arms and legs, it's a crass thing to say that they're thrown into this pit, but that can't be the case for a human body. It can, and the treatment of the dead was very perfunctory. We have very different ideas and different attitudes towards death, pain, and everything that goes with it, including the disposal of the dead. We have military cemeteries, we have this idea of hallowed ground. None of that existed in the early 19th century. It developed as the 19th century passed, but right. certainly at the time of Waterloo, the dead were just something to be disposed there of. There was no Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Absolutely there were no not. flowing marble gravestones going on into the distance. No, this just no. wasn't a thing. There are monuments, but they're an entirely different thing. There are no formal cemeteries. Some of the bodies will found their way into graveyards in local churches, but by and large, you know, that 15,000 dead, they are buried in pits on the battlefield or burned on the battlefield. And there are very vivid... I've just done a study of these accounts by early visitors including a guy from Glasgow who's a cloth merchant from Glasgow living in Brussels. I've just studied his papers because his family bequeathed them to Glasgow University Library. And he writes of visiting the battlefield 
18 times over about two years. The first visit, it takes a bit of working out, he was here the day after the battle. He talks of soldiers dying in his arms. Uh, phenomenal stuff, but he describes both the graves being dug, the pits being dug, but the, the bodies also being burned because there are just too many to dispose of in that traditional manner. But there were the searchers after the First World War, those who went to look for their missing sons. It would plague them for their entire lives. Yeah. And so many were found yeah. and brought back home or, or put into those battlefield cemeteries. Yeah. Did you have the same here? Did families come out? Were they desperately looking for their loved ones? They, they would. And, and the thing is that we're, we're looking at a time where you have camp followers. So families would come on campaign. And there are descriptions, you know, there's a story here of a child being born in the middle of one of the squares. It might be slightly apocryphal, but there were certainly wives and women here. And there are descriptions of their dead bodies being found on the battlefield. I mean, there's one story I encountered recently where they were stripping the dead. And that's the thing. All of the kit, all of the clothing was stripped. One account says everything but these socks of the Highlanders. Right. We won't, yeah. we won't go any further into that. But the point is that those bodies are entirely naked by the time they're, they're disposed of. And all of that kit is sold, recycled, used, and it becomes almost an industry. And for years, things are being found on the battlefield. And it's quite clear from the work I've done that the cuirass, the piece of armor that would be on the French cavalryman's uh, breast, the breastplate, was the most sought after item. And this Glaswegian merchant that I'm talking about, some of his papers take the forms of letters to his brother and his nephew in Glasgow and accompany parcels of kit from, and he said, you will find enclosed a cuirass, a bonnet, um, you know, such and such for your brother or whatever. And so there's this list of what he's found and he describes the cuirass and he said, when I picked it up, and I think he picked it up near La Belle Alliance and he says, he says it was caked in blood and it stank and I've tried to clean it up, but here it, and, but this guy in Glasgow had requested it. You know, he hadn't even come over and taken it as a souvenir. He wanted one, he'd heard about this and wanted one. So he shipped it back for him. So this becomes almost an industry to the point where by the 1850s, it looks like local factories are making fakes. Oh, that can be palmed off as... The demand is so the, high the demand for is the so high. spoils and souvenirs of exactly. war that they're making fakes. Exactly. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal story. And being an archaeologist, I, you know, I deal with the afterlife or the after-death of battles. And I become more and more interested in the afterlife of Waterloo, how it became what it is today. And an incredibly interesting and important part of that story is how they disposed of the dead and how those artefacts and objects are treated. We're back with Mark. How's our Iron Age pickaxe coming? Well, as you well know, James, as a historian, the layers of history are deep. Mm -hmm. And so to get to this Iron Age pickaxe, which I'm certain it is, we have to go slightly deeper than anticipated. Okay. So, um, Mark, we're still Mark, going. we'll leave you to it. It's tea time over here. So uh, we'll come back in a few hours and see how you're doing, all right? Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval we find those answers for you, talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr Kat Jarman, and my co-host, Matt Lewis, for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
it's a lingering mystery, isn't it? Because there haven't been that many bodies at all found of the dead at Waterloo. Am I right in thinking that this is the second ever skeleton of a human being to be found? There are others. There was one skeleton was excavated by our Belgian colleagues when they did the watching brief on the museum, which opened yes. a decade or so ago. And given the amount of ground that was opened up, just one is quite a surprise. And there are one or two others, and there are other human remains. But we have no accounts of, in the modern era, of grave pits being encountered. And we've been working here since 2015. We've done a lot of work around Hougamont. We've looked at geophysical anomalies. We haven't found a single grave pit, even in areas where we have paintings from the time and descriptions of the time of grave pits. There has been nothing. And I've just published a paper which has, to my huge surprise, garnered quite a lot of interest. And I suggested there that stories that have been passed down about these grave pits basically being mined out in the decades after the battle and the bones collected and shipped across to the UK and ground up into bone meal and bone dust and used as a fertilizer. And we have newspaper stories from the 1820s and 30s of that happening, but very little other evidence. So my working hypothesis, if you like, when we arrived here this week was that we're not likely to find many of these grave pits because my feeling is that a lot of them have been robbed out, but I needed further evidence for that. And we have the negative evidence in the form that in the archeology span hasn't, this notwithstanding, obviously, but I'm now working with a Belgian historian and a German historian who on the continent are coming up with much more evidence for that industrial use of human bone. And I'm not going to say any more now. No. This is a story in the making. In fact, I've missed phone calls from my colleagues today who've made further discoveries on that. But there is no smoke without fire, so to speak, and there is more of a story there. But it looks as though that's part of the story. But time, time will tell, because like you say, you're doing this massive survey of the battlefield, the biggest that's ever been done. And if you found human remains here, you may well still find human remains on the battlefield yeah. of Waterloo. And I, and I think it's likely, they're not like, given the number of graves that there would have been, not, yeah. not every, even if there was semi-industrial removal of bones, they're not going to have cleared everything. And so there will be relics like this. And, but this is a very specific type of pit. Yeah. And I'll talk you through it because it, yeah, it, it's quite, we're still trying to work out exactly what's happened. But the story we've got thus far, and being an archaeologist, I could well be telling somebody a different story in a week's time because that's how we operate. But what appears to be happening is, I don't think it is a ditch, but we're still debating that. And, and that's what archaeologists do. It's great, you know, on site and in the bar later. And, well, I don't think it is, you know, there's this, that. But my view of this now is that what we're looking at is a purpose-cut, rectilinear, long... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thin trench with a flat bottom. And I've actually found a painting, one of the James Rouse painting of La Haison, which is a farm just over the crest there. That's the aftermath. And in the foreground, they're burying, stripping bodies and burying them. But in the background, on this side of the road, there is a linear trench that's clearly been backfilled very recently. And I think we're looking at a type of disposal site. And so they've dug this long trench. We don't know how long it is. We haven't found the ends yet. As I've said, there is a human skeleton at that end. We've still got space to go on, on the other side. So I can't tell you how, how long it is. If it is a trench, I'm going to annoy my colleagues if I totally throw away the ditch idea. Ironically, because that was my take initially. I mean, that, yeah. was, that was the idea I had during lockdown. It's got to be this ditch. But the point is that what they've done, and this is where it gets disturbing, and we have accounts of this. There are, If you imagine that, let's say, Ney's famous cavalry charge, French charge in the afternoon about 4 p.m., that involved between maybe eight and 10,000 horses. You imagine how many of them are killed or wounded. And given the fact that it was easier to shoot at a horse and hit a horse than the man on it, especially if he's got armor on. So a lot of thousands of horses are dying and thousands are wounded. And effective to do that because it knocks the man off the horse. Exactly, exactly. And it creates an obstacle. Yeah. Um, but there are descriptions of horses wandering the bath. I can feel myself getting... It, it's dreadful that we're so impacted by the, the suffering of animals when you're dealing also with human remains, but it's the reality. And there are stories of horses with shattered muzzles, hobbling around with three legs, you know, absolute horror show. And so obviously a lot of these had to be destroyed. Cut down is the only thing to do. What they've done here, I think, is they've cut this pit. There's probably a ramp at one end. They've led them in one by one and they've shot them and they've just dropped. And we've actually got people on the team that, you know, the cavalry still exist in some form within our veteran community. And I had Sam tell me that this is exactly how a horse body crumples when it's shot, it just drops straight down. And that's captured here. That moment is captured in skeletal form. And then we brought Gary in with the metal detector and we said, right, scan the trench every skull gave the signature of what we think is a musket ball. So they brought them in one after the other, nose to tail, shot them in the head. That's what we're working on, but that story might change. We're still cleaning them up. And so we've got, at the moment, four horses in a row in a pit specifically cut for their disposal and the disposal of human bodies. We've got at least one. It looks a complete skeleton. But then on top of that, We've also got what we think are these tin ammo boxes. On top of a stack of them, we had the three legs, 
which had been amputated and brought out. And when we got those back to the lab, when the Belgian specialists were looking at those in the lab, one of them had a French musket ball lodged in it. Right. Um, so, you know, this it doesn't get any more visceral. So you can forget your Lady Butler paintings yeah. of, you know, guys with swords on beautiful grey horses. The glory this is the reality. Yeah, this and is it, the reality. And it's hell. Yeah. And, but it's a great privilege for all of us on this team to actually experience this. I mean, as I, I've always described archaeology as the closest thing we have to a time machine. And we are in the TARDIS now, right here. And it's not pretty, but it's the reality and it's a privilege to see it. And I, it's exactly the sort of thing I wanted us to be encountering, to give a gravitas, to take away from the boy's own image, you know, the thin red line. And the reality is here, right in front of us. And this is the true human cost of war, the cost of war to the animals, and you're, you're able to tell almost every layer aspect of the battle. And one thing that I find fascinating about being here is it's also that veteran community that is helping you to tell this history. Yeah, yeah, I mean... With, with, without them, you wouldn't be able to no, know those details. No, they've got that experience to the point where when we excavated those three limbs in 2019, we had a double amputee veteran on the team. And you might think, well, that's horrific. That person is being exposed to that. Well, let's park that for one thing. We have an incredible mental health and welfare team. I've met them, they're amazing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, we have become, I think, world leaders in that, along with others. But the amazing thing was that his attitude was a positive one because he basically said, I'm pretty sure if that was me at the time, I wouldn't have survived that. And yet here I am having a crack with the team, you know, and, you know, going to the bar this evening and a very pragmatic, realistic measuring up of his own existence in comparison. And we don't know whether the guys that lost those legs lived or died, you know, chances are that 50-50, whatever, or even less. So that encounter was phenomenal. Well, it's fascinating to see how you're able to take this history of the impact of war, the visceral impact of war, and link it in with those who are still living with the impacts of war today. And I think it's safe to say that the history of Waterloo is, is very much still alive and still fluid. Very much so. There are libraries of books literally on Waterloo, but we are telling the story afresh on a daily basis. And that's what I tell, you know, my briefings. I say, don't listen to anybody that tells you that an archaeologist is just a technician providing data for a historian. You are the historians. Every time you're on that hill, you pull out a musket ball with your metal detector, you are rewriting the Battle of Waterloo and its history. Well, Tony, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad we talked that through, actually. It's almost a form of therapy. Liam, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. It has been a long day. It's been a hot day down in the slogging in the trenches we're back at the hotel we've even got some quite interesting lounge music going on around us which is a strange thing as a setting for discussions about waterloo but we will persevere now you've got to tell us a little bit about when you first got involved and how you heard about waterloo uncovered so i am ex-army i served in the british army for almost 15 years I was very lucky to serve between two very prestigious regiments, uh, the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards and the Household Cavalry. And yeah, I left the army in 2017. And I, you know, I loved it, had a great career and was put onto the charity Waterloo Uncovered by an old colleague who knew I had a, a, a very amateur sort of passion for history, particularly Napoleonic history. And they, at the time they were doing, and I'm sure they'll do them again, they were doing online courses and they really support the, you know, they're all about the veteran community, the wider military family, 
um, serving personnel. Um, so yeah, and I applied for the first course. It was quite nerve wracking. I'm, I'm not an academic by any means. I haven't done anything academic since GCSEs, which was quite some time ago. And to be honest, I started Battlefields Uncovered 1 in September last year, and I just haven't looked back. When I talk to people about what Waterloo Uncovered are doing, I say that you know this is an organisation that brings veterans out to battlefields across Europe, specifically the battlefield of Waterloo since 2015. And it is and can be for anyone who has served, but also for those who suffer from PTSD, war trauma, post-traumatic stress, whatever label that you want to give it. Mm. And it really offers support and a little bit of camaraderie. And they turn to me and they say, right, okay, so you're taking veterans who have suffered from the traumas of war and you're putting them into a battlefield situation, Mm. perhaps exhuming the remains of those who have died in battle. For many, it doesn't quite add up. Now, being here for the last few days, I see exactly how it adds up. But maybe you can explain it to us. Absolutely. I mean, archaeology in itself is its extremely interesting. Conflict archaeology is a whole separate genre, if you will. And getting veterans and, and service personnel and, like I say, the wider military family together. Um, first of all, archaeology is surprisingly therapeutic. There is a lot of it that is very, you know, you have to be very careful. You have to be very gentle. And um, when you're doing that sort of work, it, it, it takes you away, you know, you, all you're concentrating on in that moment is, you know, the trowel and the ground and squaring things off or, you know, uncovering an artifact, for example. Your mind is focused. Absolutely, absolutely. And all of your troubles in that moment, and I understand and I've suffered myself with it at times, the archaeology really just focuses your, your attention and it, it takes you away. It, you know, it's a, it's a huge escape. And it's got to be a part of it is the team here as well, because they are truly remarkable oh i i mean i cannot speak highly enough of the the people that run this this charity they have absolutely changed my life in a crazy and positive and wonderful way i'm I'm having the time of my life with waterloo uncovered just such a good bunch and and and, you know a real team oh absolutely they they complement each other well everyone gets on everyone pulls together there's always there's always someone there if you need them if you need time away, if you need to take five, you know, it, it's incredible. The amount of support that's available. The level of care is really something else. Mm. But let's go back down into the archaeology itself, because we've been talking to a number of people here, experts, enthusiasts, veterans, everyone who is involved in this process. And, you know, no one was expecting that what was found here was going to be found. And, and this is going out after the embargo, this is an exclusive. We now know that there have been human remains, which may well be a veteran of the Battle of Waterloo that have been found. And there's many of those who talk about this in terms of almost excitement, vitriol, um, that this is, is, is truly something amazing for history. But we only talk about that when a battle is outside of living memory. For you and for those who have served this must be something that is actually a little bit more somber. This is a human. This is a veteran. This is probably someone that served with the British and died in battle. Do you feel that as we're involved in this project? Oh, 100%. Um, like you say, this is a real person and this isn't a remote place. This isn't a paper or you know a study online. This could be someone's dad, brother, someone's son, and this is where they've ended up. And like you say, they could be British, they could be one of our allies from the battle, and it's hugely important. And I know the stock that Waterloo Uncovered place on, on that respect, 
and on, on that dignity. And it's hugely important to me that if at all possible, we do everything that we can to ensure that that person has that dignity and respect. I think dignity and respect are the key words there. And, you know, one thing for me that you know, I, I didn't know too much about Waterloo. I, I knew the big ticket items. I knew that this was Napoleon's last stand, his last chance, and Wellington's greatest victory. Although Wellington goes on to be a terrible prime minister, but we won't <laughs> hold that against him at these times. We know of many terrible prime ministers. But as we look at this and we go down to the human level and those who served, we also know, and one thing I've learned from being here, is that there are so few bodies that were found, mm. despite the fact that there were thousands killed. And there are many theories as to why this is the case. Do you think that it's important that this is only the second ever skeleton found on the battlefield? Do you think this is important to remember those who served and died for Britain during the battle? Absolutely. You know, you take the words right out of my mouth. These, these young people signed up to do their bit for their country, like I say, whether they be British or allies. And it's hugely important that we do everything we can to... You know, there is an element of celebration, I think, but to celebrate their sacrifice and their lives and their commitment to the cause. In freeing Europe from tyranny, it, it sounds a bit of a trope, but it's really important. And many of the guys at the time probably didn't realise the impact that their actions were having on European history. We see the link between Waterloo and where we are today, and it's you can't argue with how much it affected European history from that date. It's a world-changing battle. Absolutely. And at the beginning of this podcast, you were saying to me, you know, you're no expert, but I hear that you've been giving <laughs> lectures on this now, and you are one hell of an expert on some of the aspects of this battle. So what do you think, in terms of the understanding of the battle, that, that this particular slice of history tells us about Waterloo? Do you think that what Waterloo uncovered are doing here across multiple sites and we're following across different trenches and also the, the quite incredible use of metal detectors for only the second time, I think, with approval at least, official search across the battlefield. What do you think they're adding to our understanding of Waterloo? Oh, I mean, the, the level of knowledge that this investigation, and, and it isn't just digging trenches, it's reading maps, it's, it's huge, it's speaking to local farmers and landowners. It can change the whole course of what we know about things. You know, we rely on primary sources and, and they get diluted over time. And a person might have been at Waterloo in 1815 and, and not wrote their memoirs until the 1850s. And, you know, memories change and, and, and thoughts fade and all that stuff. But what Waterloo Uncovered are doing is it's world changing stuff. It really is. It's that level of understanding, you know, to prove myths, to disprove myths, to establish facts. It's just and to have the veterans and service personnel and like I say, those people involved. It's a world class programme. Well, you know what? There was something that Tony, the head of the archaeological side of the dig, said today. He said to you guys at the end of day briefing, what you're doing here will be remembered in a hundred years' time. And I think that is 100% true. Mm. Liam, will you be here next year? They can't get rid of me now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to talk to you again next year. Liam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.